0: Welcome to C is for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome for Season 2 of C is
1: for Creepy. Thank you so much for everyone who has stuck with us
0: while we took our small hiatus. Well, long hiatus. I I know.
1: I was trying to, you know, ease the burden. That's
0: okay. We needed a break and we are very happy to be back with some awesome stories.
1: We've got a great season ahead. Yes, I'm so excited. Me too. So, tell me about what you've been working on. What does this season look like for you?
0: So, for me, it's Continuing on with a combination of less-known cases while covering a few really high-profile ones, so I'm trying to do a combination. I'm also being a little less strict with my words, so I'm not specifically picking crime words like I tried to do last time. I'm picking just, like, phrases and kind of going with it. Okay. So you'll see some of those to look forward to how about you what does this season look like for you um well this season
1: i'm working on doing a lot more of a mix in between conspiracy theories haunted items um aliens. Like there's going to be a lot more mix up.
0: Ooh, I love a variety.
1: Yeah, it's not going to be strictly ghost stories.
0: Okay, sweet.
1: Um and it's actually been it's been
0: super interesting. I'm really really excited. Yeah. Is there there is going to be a few ghosts though, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. As long as there's there going to be a
1: few ghosts. But let's be honest here. Eventually they all kind of start to mold together as the woman in white
0: yes who coming
1: down the stairs pushing people yes um so yeah i'm gonna try and find some like really obscure ghost stories and do some haunted items and places and people hopefully looking for some haunted people that would be cool um yeah so that's what the paranormal aspect of this looks like
0: awesome well you heard it here first folks it's (laughs) gonna be a great season
1: Yes. So, what do you have for us today?
0: So, I started my notes, and I didn't want to go too dark. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to go with A is for art theft, <laughs> for my first case. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Are you covering all the art theft from, like, World War One, no, or World War Two?
0: I am not covering it because there is so much... Art theft that happened during like any sort of wars, especially yeah. in World War Two, but there is so much of it. So like, one wouldn't think
1: that art is like such a hot button item to steal, but it really is.
0: It can be. We all. I'll get to it. So, uh, okay, from Britannica Dictionary, this is the loveliest definition for art that I could find. Beautiful. So, art can be defined as something that is created with imagination and skill, and that is beautiful or that expresses important ideas and feelings. All right. While this is an accurate definition, I would like to add that art is extremely subjective, so beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. That said, some pieces of art can be worth millions of dollars. While there are a number of different factors that can determine the value of a painting, generally when a piece of art is was created by a well-known artist from history, it tends to be worth more. Yep. For example, the most expensive painting ever sold was Salvatore Mundi, painted by Leonardo da Vinci, which sold for $475 million in 2016 during auction. Holy shit. With numbers like this, it is very easy to see why some might be tempted to steal these priceless works.
1: But the problem comes is like there's one of it. So what are you gonna do with it once you've stolen it? You cannot resell it to a well, you know, checked person.
0: Well it's that um And if you're ever caught with it, you're fucked. Yeah. So, before we get to that, yes. I am going to talk about how one might steal a painting. Okay. Okay. So, there's a couple different common methods that can get the job done. So, when I first hear art theft, my thought is heist. Mm-hmm. And actually, Canada has a really notable example of this. Oh. In 1972, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts was broken into by three armed robbers who entered via skylight and made off with $11.7 million worth of art, including a Remembrance Labs landscape valued at $1 million. Whoa. None of the stolen artworks have ever been recovered. Now you might be thinking, wouldn't it be easy to get caught lugging around these giant paintings? Generally, The art is cut from their frames and rolled up for easy transportation. Yeah. So, now how to profit off these artworks? Like back in the jewel theft cases, in order to receive the best value for these pieces, the stolen property has to make its way through to a legitimate market. Mm Mm-hmm. Without these portals, hot paintings are seldom sold for what they are worth and have been known to either be destroyed, abandoned, or otherwise vanish from existence. It has been estimated that only 5-10% to of stolen artwork has ever been recovered. Wow. The other side of art theft is forgery and fakes infiltrating the market. Yeah. Art forgery implies that the creator of the piece intentionally meant to deceive potential buyers. Mm -hmm. These forgers use specialized skills and science to replicate artist's style, age these works, and provide provenance documents for further proof of the legitimacy of the artwork. Okay. Oh, so... Due to the cost needed to fully authenticate art, many smaller museums or private collectors might not pay for the full scientific analysis. As well, in order to prevent misattribution lawsuits, many experts are less than willing to authenticate artwork. So, the prevalence of these forgeries and fakes are unlikely to go away anytime soon, with one estimate. From 2014, being that half of all artwork in circulation is fake. Oh, shit. That number is believed to be on the higher end of the spectrum, but without scientific analysis, it can be very difficult to know for sure. So, like, I don't know if you know a bunch, like, a bit about art, or...
1: Not a whole hell of a lot, no.
0: So, especially, like, with old masters and stuff there'd be a lot of students learning under them mimicking their styles so a lot of those works are often misattributed to the masters when it's really these students that were learning from them and copying their styles so they're saying it's up a cost or you know what I mean but it's not yeah okay that's a thing to be like that's more of a fake that's not a forgery yeah yeah just to clarify (laughs) forgery
1: is in malicious intent exactly
0: fake is
1: it's close enough but yeah hard to tell
0: yeah exactly okay so now on to my case i'm going to be covering the isabella stewart gardner museum theft so i had started these notes using the museum's but the museum's website wikipedia And other websites for my research, but then I was pleasantly surprised to find that there is a Netflix documentary called This is a Robbery, and it was well done. So, if you're feeling like watching uh, about art theft, I recommend that one. So, I'm just going to quickly do a little bit of history. Isabella Stewart Gardner was born April 14th, 1840 in New York City to an affluent family. Okay. Her father, David Stewart, made his fortune from importing linen and through investing his wealth. Isabella met her future husband, John Gardner Jr., while they were both in Paris, and the couple married in 1860. They moved to John's hometown of Boston, where they settled down. Isabella gave birth to their son, John Gardner III, but the boy unexpectedly died of pneumonia when he was three years old. Oh, In order to help his wife with the depression of the with the loss of their son, John and Isabella began traveling. So I'm not going to get into all their travels, but it was during this time that Isabella developed a fondness for collecting rare books and artworks. OK. Isabella and her husband shared a dream of building a museum to showcase this art. The building of this museum did not take place until 1899 in Boston and was not finished until late 1901. Well, wow. Isabella moved into the museum's fourth-floor living quarters and spent her days arranging the many works of art on the lower three floors. The okay. mu- Yeah, could you like that would be so cool just being able to live above your museum, yeah, with all of your priceless works of art that you've collected. Yes,
1: but how many ghosts come with that? That would be my question.
0: I mean, it's a brand new building. It was just built. The books and the paintings, though. Mm, touché. I'd
1: be a little hesitant, but it would be very cool.
0: Yeah, I think I'm <laughs> willing over <to> a sketch. <laughs> okay, so the museum opened for public view in 1903, showcasing her private art collection. Isabella encouraged patrons of the arts and artists of all types to spend their their time in her museum, and she received guests until her death in 1924. She left her museum for the education and enjoyment of the public forever, and left an endowment for the museum to continue to operate. Isabella's only stipulation was that nothing in the galleries should be changed, and no items could be acquired or sold from her collection. Oh. Now about the museum itself. The building, while plain on the outside, was gorgeous on the inside. Mm -hmm. It was designed by Willard Sears with a lot of help and insights from Isabella. Okay, So she had a lot of opinions that she wanted. I like it. Okay, so the building design was from the buildings in Venice, so there's multiple eras being mm-hmm. integrated with influence from Roman Byzantine Romanesque Gothic and the rena renet holy crap Renaissance, and they combined it into a cohesive masterpiece. Oh, that's amazing! It's actually really cool, like looking at pictures of the museum like I'd love to go there sometime to see it. Okay, that's super cool. The museum features a courtyard filled with botanicals and columns. The works of art include 7,500 paintings, sculptures, textiles, silver, ceramics, 3,000 rare books, and 7,000 archival objects from ancient Rome medieval times just like everywhere from all around the world there it's a huge collection wow so the art is then sorted into different theme rooms such as the dutch room a gothic room the blue room just to name a few oh My god i'm so sorry that's okay you might be able to hear ren in the background she's the puppy she's a baby <laughs> She's trying her best, but she she doesn't like being ignored yet. No.
1: <laughs> Alright, so they had a bunch of rooms. That's super cool.
0: <laughs> That's the long and short of it, yes. A lot of art, a lot of rooms. <laughs> I like it. Okay.
1: <laughs> I really hope you're not about to break my heart and say that it was all stolen.
0: Well, not all of it. Okay. Now, despite Isabella's endowment given to her museum, funds were getting low come the 1980s. This left the expansive collection missing amenities wealthier museums had, including climate controls and insurance policies. Yeah.
1: You know what? That's pretty good, though. Like, it lasts... When did she die? She died
0: 1924. So it lasted 60 years. Uh-huh. Like, that's pretty good. It, I, I'm not saying it isn't. It definitely is. It just costs money. Much-needed building repairs were not being completed due to the lack of funds. It was only because the FBI uncovered a plot by the Boston Mafia to rob the museum in 1982 that the museum allocated funds towards its security. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, included in these improvements were infrared motion detectors... So there was only 4 cameras placed on the outside of the building's perimeter and there was no cameras inside of the building. Oh, okay. The only way to alert police of any trouble was from a button at the security desk. In 1988, a security consultant deemed that the museum was on par with others. However, they did make Multiple recommendations for improvements, lack of budget, and with Isabella's wish not to make any reserva- um uh, renovations in mind, these improvements were not approved. Were, were they? Th- sorry, were they not making money from the museum itself? Not particularly. No, okay. like not enough to keep up with everything else Kay. going on. So the biggest request made by security director was to increase the guard's wages as to recruit more qualified personnel. But once again, the recommendation was disregarded. Now, it is March 18th, 1990. The time? 1230 (laughs) a.m. Outside of the Isabella Gardner Museum, Two men dressed as policemen sit in a hatchback near the side door. Okay. Inside the museum, two guards are working. The first is twenty-three-year-old Rick Abath, a regular night watchman. The second was twenty-five-year-old Randy Histand. This was Histand's first time working the night shift. The security policy was that one guard patrolled the museum with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie, while the other guard manned the desk. Okay. During the first patro- first patrol, fire alarms went off in different rooms. Upon investigation, there was no signs of fire or smoke for a bath, so he went to the control room to disarm everything. He deemed it a malfunction, he shut down the panel. Okay. Abath returned to the security desk around 1 a.m. and he stand started his rounds. At 1.20 a.m., the men dressed in police uniforms drove up to the side door of the building. They approached the door and rang the buzzer. Okay. Abath could see the policemen on the CCTV. The men claimed that they were investigating a disturbance and needed to be let in. Oh. Since Saint Patrick's Day was the evening before, Abath theorized that someone might have drunkenly climbed a wall, so he let the men enter. Okay. Once the two men entered the building, they approached Abath at the security desk and wanted to know if there was anything, anyone else in the building, and to bring them down. Abath walked his down to the main floor. One of the officers said that Abath looked familiar. And that they might have a warrant for his arrest. He demanded that Abath come out from behind the desk to prove his identification. Abath complied, leaving the only means to contact police unmanned. Oh. It was at this point that one of the men pushed Abath against the wall and handcuffed him. His stand was also handcuffed as soon as he approached the security desk. At this point, both men with both guards incapacitated the two men finally revealed their intentions that this was a robbery and if they did not want to be hurt they should not interfere oh okay so this is pretty freaky both of the guards were then duct taped so they had duct tape wrapped around their heads and their eyes and they were led into the basement where they were then handcuffed to a steam pipe and a workbench and like, there's a photo of how the duct tape was wrapped around them, and it was all in their hair. And all I could think was, you know, just to that insult to injury. Could you imagine trying to take that out? No. <laughs> I'd be so mad. Right? So, it took the thieves 15 minutes to subdue the guards, and it was now one thirty-five a.m. I don't really blame these guards either, like they were trying to get more security and yeah they were or like you know these guys so like rick at bath i guess was not like the most dedicated security professional oh for minimum wage in 1990 that's right Hmm. like i mean are you surprised i'm not i I, i don't blame him but
1: i i feel like i've had many jobs where it's like if somebody comes in to rob the place i would open the cash register and say, "Have, have a nice at, day."
0: Yeah, have at her. So,
1: like my my life is not more important than a company's money.
0: No, hundred percent. So there was many security flaws that were also known amongst the security team, and these guys were being paid little above minimum wage. So, oh, why would you fight to the death? Like, yeah. not worth it. Sorry. No. So the thieves proceeded to enter the Dutch room, which is where some of the most valuable works of art were stolen from. They pulled specific paintings off the wall, breaking the glass in the process. These paintings paintings included the Concert by Vermeer and a few works Rembrandt, such as The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was his only waterscape. That was a very big deal, and it was mentioned a hundred times. So now you have to hear it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um also a lady and a gentleman in black the thieves would cut the canvas from their frames ooh so like they i didn't had, even break the frame just cut the canvas yeah they just like so they just cut it right off the frame and just so they could roll it up for easy transportation okay mm-hmm. one painting by rembrandt was removed but not taken most likely being deemed too large and it was also painted on wood, so um, not rollable, easy transportation. No. Right? So the entire theft took 81 minutes. The guards made at least two trips back and forth from the galleries to their car. The okay. final trip, the thieves checked on the guards in the basement to see if they were comfortable. <laughs> They've duct tape all over their eyes and hair. You guys good? Right? Thumbs up. (laughs) Right? So they finally left at 2.45am, leaving with 13 works of art worth about $200 million at the time. Jesus. So the FBI took control of the case based on the assumption that the thieves would have crossed state lines in order to move the stolen property. There was no strong physical evidence left behind at the scene there was no fingerprints or hair found and the amount of fingerprints made it difficult to determine if anyone could have been left behind, left from one of the thieves yep. the men were described as 5 foot 9 and in his late 30s with a medium build and the other being about 6 feet tall in his early 30s with a heavier build They were both sporting mustaches, although it was believed that they may have been fake. (laughs) Investigators believed at first that it was most likely an inside job conducted by Rick Abath due to some suspicious behavior Abath did the night of the theft. Of just not giving a shit? Well, (laughs) during his patrol, Abath had gone to the employee's side door and opened and closed it seemingly without purpose. It was believed that this could have been a signal to the thieves to start the robbery. Abath claimed that he opened that particular door every night and it was protocol to do so. Security footage of that door does not support this statement, however. The security guard had put in his notice so that he could spend more time with his band and was planning on calling in the following night shift so he could attend a Grateful Dead concert. So, like we said, not really the most dedicated security professional, but Abath has also claimed that he has had nothing to do with the robbery, and investigators believe he was too incompetent and foolish to pull off the crime. So, fair. There were many early suspicions of who the robbers could have been, And investigators followed many potential leads. One possible lead came from a letter sent to the museum's director Anne hallway in 1994. The author of the letter claimed claimed to be a negotiator who was hired to trade the stolen artwork for the prison sentence production of an unknown person. Hmm. The time had passed for a trade, so the author wanted to instead negotiate a return. They asked for complete immunity and $2.6 million to be put into an offshore bank account. If this could be achieved, the director could reach out by putting a coded message into the Boston Globe. Upon receiving this letter, the FBI followed the letter's instructions for communication, yeah. So they responded back. They were trying to see what would happen. The author sent one more letter back to Anne Hallway, stating that they feared an investigation into their identity and would have to weigh their options. And there was no further communication. And it, there's lots of people that come out of the word work when things go missing, when crimes happen. So it's impossible to know if this was a legitimate claim. Mm-hmm. So now at this point I have to say that who these thieves were that stole the artwork from the Isabella Gardner Museum were never caught and arrested for this crime. None of the missing artwork has ever been recovered. Like none of it? None of it. All 13 paintings. Wow. Well there was paintings, there was a sketch, there's a few sketches, so just it was kind of a really varied selection of art that was taken. Because you got the Galilee, um, the waterscape, right? That was worth millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and then they also took some sketches by Vermeer. So, just it almost seemed like the thieves didn't know exactly what was worth the most. Yeah, but that's speculation. It's hard to say. So even doing research about this case is extremely just mind melting as there is the potential for so many people being involved or like who could have been the thieves or who could have orchestrated it it was just there's too many leads to go down mm-hmm. so I'm going to just stick to a few um as of 2013 the FBI released a statement saying that they had positively identified the two thieves in 2015, the FBI released the identity of these two men, George Reesfielder and Leonard or Lenny Dimizio, both associates of the Boston Mafia. Now, interestingly, both of these men did die under suspicious circumstances about a year after the theft, which could add some credence to okay. their involvement. The question remains. Why were these artworks stolen and where are they now? Yeah. With both of the most likely suspects dead, it is impossible to know for sure. So we can get to a couple theories. So i love have a good theory. I got a couple theories. I got a couple. They're not mine. They're from yeah. the internet. <laughs> Let's get it out of the way that the FBI believes, and has believed from the get-go, that the Boston Mafia was involved in the theft. Their first theory is that the heist was orchestrated by the gangster Bobby Donati. It is believed that with the help of his friend Robert Garante, the theft took place so that the artwork could be used to negotiate their friend Vincent Ferreira out of prison. Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991 from gang activity, and Robert Guarante died from cancer in 2004. If Bobby Donati was never able to enact his plan to trade the artwork, then it was most likely left to another member of the Boston Mafia. Mm-hmm. Robert Guarante's widow told the FBI in 2010 that when her husband was sick, he gave the paintings to Robert Galent? sorry Gentile Gentile part of the Merlino gang hmm. Gentile was, has not or ever admitted to having the stolen artworks in his possession while in federal custody for unrelated charges Gentile was asked if he knew about the theft or the location of the artworks while attached to a polygraph he did fail the questions when he said that he didn't know Interestingly, though, as well, Gentile passed when he said that Garante's widow showed him one of these stolen paintings. Regardless, Gentile went to prison for 30 months on unrelated drug charges. So since the theft occurred, as per Isabella Garner's instructions, nothing has been added to replace the stolen artworks, and to this day, the empty frames hang on the gallery walls. Oh shit! It's really eerie. Mm -hmm. Like seeing, there's going to be photos on the Instagram, of course. Perfect. The museum has a reward of ten million dollars for information leading to the recovery of all of the works in good condition. Mm -hmm. As well, the federal prosecution says that anyone who willingly returns the stolen items will not be prosecuted. All right. So, what is your A? My A.
1: We're starting out strong this week is A is for Annabelle.
0: Oh, right into it!
1: Right into it. Awesome. So, for my letter A today, I will be covering the true story behind Ed and Lorraine Warren's haunted doll, the infamous Annabelle. The information was pulled from Wikipedia, allthat'sinteresting.com, and popsugar.com. Okay. So, though she doesn't share the same porcelain skin and terrifying grin, and lifelike features as the movie, mm-hmm. the animal doll Annabelle doll that lives in the Occult Museum of Famous Paranormal Investigators and, and Lorraine Warren, who also worked on the case, is all more creepy by just how ordinary she is. Ugh. So for anybody who doesn't know, she is a Raggedy yan doll, oh. which I think is... You know, people say that it's ordinary, but mm-mm.
0: I don't think so. No. mm
1: No. Or maybe, like, we're all just tainted by raggedy
0: handballs at this point. Yeah. Just any sort of doll.
1: Yeah. But Annabelle's stitched features, including her half-smile and bright orange triangular nose, evokes memories of childhood toys in simpler times. <laughs> Given that she is an old Raggedy Ann doll, though, if you could ask Ed and Lorraine Warren, they would tell you that the warnings written across Annabelle's glass case are more than necessary. Oh. According to the well-known demonologist couple, the doll is responsible for two near-death experiences, one fatal accident, and a string of demonic activities that lasted some 30 years wow
0: that's just like she's just terrorizing folks
1: she's got nothing better to do she's sitting in a glass case nobody is letting her live her best life so (laughs) might as well yeah so the first of these infamous hauntings can allegedly allegedly be traced back to 1970 when a woman purchased an antique Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store. The story was told to the Warrens by two young women and was retold for years after by the Warrens themselves. Okay. As the story goes, the Annabelle doll had been gifted to a young nurse named Donna from her mother for her 28th birthday. 28 and
0: you're getting a Raggedy Ann doll? Yeah. Okay, Maybe she was a collector. I mean, there's. Remember in the Be- Be- Beanie Babies? Yeah, yeah. Damn. Still. I mean, in a couple of years, please do not give me a doll.
1: No. <laughs> I wasn't going to. Though now I might just. Oh, no. Oh, shits shit. and giggles. Oh, I'll it, buy you a haunted doll off eBay.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, you're evil. I know.
1: <laughs> All right. So, Donna apparently thrilled with the gift brought it back to her apartment that she shared with another young nurse named angie okay at first the doll was an adorable accessory sitting on the sofa in the living room and greeting visitors with her colorful visage Uh oh but before long the two women began to notice that annabelle seemed to move no no at first it just made slight changes in position But the doll eventually began moving to entirely different rooms. Oh, no. Don't like that. No. no. Hard pass. Mm -hmm. Donna would sit her on the living room sofa before leaving for work, only to come home in the afternoon and find her in the bedroom with the door shut. Could you imagine the fights that ensued between Donna and Angie?
0: That would have been a very dramatic time for the two of them. Well, yeah.
1: Like, if I had a doll that was moving... I 100% would be blaming Jeff, and when he told me, no, I didn't touch your shit, I would not believe him. I'd Mm-mm. be like, why are you lying? Yeah. Like, stop doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Why are you gaslighting <clears throat> me?
1: Right. <laughs> like, I, I, there would be no other option. Mm-hmm. So, I could only imagine the tension that built between these two. Mm-hmm.
0: Friends off. For sure.
1: Literally. Donna and Angie then started finding notes left throughout the apartment reading, help me. The fuck no, no. But again, I I don't think that I would be able to accept that it was a doll. Mm-hmm. I feel like my realistic side of me would be like, why are you fucking with me?
0: Mm-hmm. I definitely could see that.
1: Yeah. So according to the women, the notes were written on parchment
0: paper, which they did not even keep in their home how don't know that's horrifying i don't like this now it can just materialize paper yeah well and you know i can write apparently it can spell too like it's not just scribbles
1: no (laughs) right so furthermore angie and donna had a friend known as lou who faced annabelle's wrath the most Lou apparently was not a huge fan of the doll and repeatedly told Donna that it was evil. One night, he said he spotted the doll at the foot of his bed. It floated up from his feet and began to strangle him. He blacked out from the oxygen deprivation and didn't wake up until the next morning. Then he was in the apartment one afternoon while Donna was out and he heard rustling in her room.
0: Okay, why would you come back if you were choked out by a doll?
1: Why would w- you sleep there in the first place if you knew that thing was evil?
0: Yeah. Lou, there's holes in your story.
1: I <laughs> Or he's just stupid.
0: Yes. Maybe he's just trying to get with Angie and Donna.
1: <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um... And, like, why was he there when Donna was gone? I don't know. I don't know. So, um... Then he was in the apartment one afternoon while Donna was out, and he heard rustling in her room, as if somebody had broken in. Upon inspection, he found no signs of forced entry, but found the Annabelle doll laying face down on the ground. Some other versions of the story say that he was attacked upon waking up from his nap. Mm -hmm. Um, But suddenly, he felt a searing pain on his chest, looked down to find bloody claw marks running across it. Two days later, they had vanished without a trace.
0: Oh, God. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it went through his shirt or if... It it, was under his shirt. That's worse. That's so much worse. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, um, following Lou's traumatic experience and Donna seeing blood unexpectedly dripping out of the doll... The women invited a medium over to help solve their seemingly paranormal problems. Seemingly. <laughs> the medium held a seance and told the women that the doll was inhabited by a spirit of a deceased seven-year-old named Annabelle Higgins.
0: Is it... I, I don't trust that a seven-year-old is leaving claw marks and choking people out. Like, that just seems sus. And like... Help me, yeah.
1: That that does seem sus. Yeah, so it was the spirit of a deceased seven-year-old named Annabelle Higgins, whose body had been found years earlier on the site where the apartment building had been built.
0: Okay, so the medium says that the that the doll wasn't haunted before, but it was after it moved in. Okay, I see.
1: Yes, and the doll, and the seven-year-old wants to move into the doll. Mm-hmm. The medium claimed the spirit was harmless and simply wanted to be loved and cared for. The two young nurses <coughs> reportedly felt bad for the spirit and consented to allow her to take up permanent residency in the doll.
0: No, that is your third mistake, homegirls. I-, I feel like
1: we are well past third mistake. You're
0: right. There's just, it's just yeah, all red flags. It's just a bunch of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Um, so, eventually, in an attempt to rid the home of the Annabelle doll spirit, Donna and Angie called on an episcopal priest known as Father Hagen. Hagen contacted his superior, Father Cook, who alerted Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that is how they joined the story. Okay. As far as Ed and Lorraine Warren were concerned... The two young ladies' trouble truly started when they began believing that the doll deserves their sympathy.
0: Mm.
1: Uh-huh. Which, you know what, I, kinda, I can understand that is, If you think this doll is a seven-year-old girl just wanting love, of course you're going to, like, it pulls on your heartstrings.
0: I get that. Yeah.
1: I wouldn't have let her move into the doll to
0: begin with, but... No. You So. Know. Huh. Um...
1: The Warrens believed that there was actually a demonic force in search of a human host within Annabelle, and not a benevolent soul. The Warrens' account of the case's state, Spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhumane spirit can attach itself to a place or an object, and this is what occurred in the Annabelle case. This spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll as it was looking to possess a human host. Mm-hmm. Immediately, the Warrens noted that they believed were signs of demonic possession, including teleportation, mm-hmm. materialization of the paper and mm-hmm. the crayons. Mm-hmm. And the mark of the beast. With the scratches? Yeah. Okay. The Warrens Warrens subsequently ordered an exorcism of the apartment to be performed by Father Cook. Then they took Annabelle out of the apartment and to her final resting place in their occult museum in the hopes that her demonic reign would finally end. Talking about a demonic reign over here. I know. (laughs) She does not do well with sit down. (laughs) Time to perform an exorcist. I wonder if that would help. (laughs) Following Annabelle's removal from Donna and Angie's apartment, the Warrens documented several other paranormal experiences involving the doll. The first just minutes after they took the possession of her. Oh. After the exorcism of the nurse's apartment, the Warrens buckled Annabelle into the back seat of their car and vowed not to take the highway in case she had some kind of accident causing power over them
0: mm-hmm.
1: and their vehicle. Mm-hmm. Even the safer back road option proved too risky for the couple. On their way home, Lorraine claimed that the brakes either stalled or failed several times. Resulting in near disastrous crashes. Lorraine claimed that as soon as Ed pulled holy water from his bag and doused the doll with it, the problem with the brakes disappeared. Ew. Upon arriving home, Ed and Lorraine placed the doll in Ed's study. There, they reported that the doll levitated and moved about the house, even when placed in the locked office in an outer building. No. The Warrens claimed that she would turn up later inside the house.
0: I don't know. No, no, no. Yeah. Pretty fucking great, hey? Remember when it was like a seven-year-old girl? Yeah. (laughs) I
1: know. Finally, the Warrens decided to lock Annabelle up for good. The Warrens had a specially made glass and wood case constructed upon which they inscribed the Lord's, Lord's Prayer and st michael's prayer for the rest of its life
0: mm, but that's where it belongs
1: yeah so ed would periodically say a binding prayer over the case ins- ensuring that the sinister spirit and the doll remained good and trapped mm-hmm. since being locked up annabelle the doll hasn't moved again though It is alleged that her spirit has found ways to reach out to the earthly plane still. Oh. Yeah. Once a priest who was visiting the Warren's museum picked up Annabelle and discounted her demonic abilities. Oh, shit. Ed Ed warned the priest about mocking Annabelle and her demonic power, but the young priest laughed him off on his way home. The priest was involved in a near-fatal crash that totaled his brand new car. Oh. He claimed to have seen Annabelle in his rearview mirror just before the accident.
0: Oh, that's freaky. Mhm.
1: Years later, another visitor wrapped on the glass of the Annabelle doll's case and laughed at how silly people were to believe in her. On his way home, he reportedly lost control of his motorcycle. And crashed head on into a tree. He was killed instantly, and his girlfriend just barely survived.
0: Oh my god! I would be so mad if I was the girlfriend. Oh, I know. I would be so mad. But like, this kind of reminds me
1: of um, oh, the doll, the other doll Robert. I did, Robert the doll. Yeah. Um, where like, if you insult him, he's coming for you. Yeah. Why? Why do we continue?
0: I don't know. To
1: um, insult possessed things. Whether you believe it or not.
0: Sometimes I think maybe, you know, a little respect could get you a long way. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just better to err on, err on the side of caution. 100 What with, with these kind of things. Especially if we're talking fatal motorcycle accidents.
1: Yeah. Well, like, if somebody came up to me and they're like, okay, this doll is haunted, you know, just mind your business yeah be polite i would Mm -hmm. i it does not matter if i believe in it it does not matter anything Mm -mm. somebody tells me that i'm going to be cursed Mm -mm. we aren't playing this game (laughs) say hello animal and keep moving with my life yeah Uh, like this whole story is full of red flags hmm Of things that could have just been... Easily avoided. Right. Um, The girlfriend had just barely survived. She claimed that at the time of the accident, the couple had been laughing about the Annabelle doll. Okay, I feel... I, I don't know. Maybe... Maybe... Okay, I would also do that. If I truly didn't believe it. I guess. Like, me and Jeff getting into the car being like...
0: What the fuck was that? Right. Yeah.
1: Because there's definitely been a few, like, roadside museums in my life that I've stopped in. (laughs) And when you leave and you get in the car, you're just like, that was a giant waste of my money. (laughs) Like, so, like, I can't put them in there. But I would not insult the doll to its face. No. So, over the years, the Warrens continued to recount these tales as proof of Annabelle the doll's horrific powers. Though, none of these stories could be corroborated. The name of the young priest and the motorcyclist were never divulged. Neither Donna nor Angie, the nurses, who were Annabelle's first victims, ever came forward with their story. And neither Father Cook or Father Hagen appeared to have mentioned their exorcism of her ever again. Oh. But they didn't exorcise the doll. They no. exorcised the ap- apartment. Yeah. So it would make sense of, like, it's not a huge deal,
0: I guess. I guess so, yeah. That would make sense, Why? At least those two wouldn't... They're getting
1: rid of the essence of Annabelle, not Annabelle. Yeah. I yeah. So, it would appear that all we have is the Warrens' word that any of this took place. Mm, okay. Though Ed and Lorraine Warren have both died, their legacy has been carried on by their daughter Judy and her husband Tony. Until his death in 2006, Ed Warren considered Tony his demonology protege and entrusted him with continuing his work, which included caring for the occult artifacts. Okay. Those artifacts include Annabelle the doll and her protective case. Echoing the warnings of his predecessors, Tony cautions visitors of the Warren's occult museum and Annabelle's powers. Someone had asked Tony, is it dangerous? And his response is, yes, it is the most dangerous object in this museum. So, for those who still doubt the Annabelle doll's power, Tony likens disturbing her to playing Russian roulette. There might just be one bullet in the gun, but would you still pull the trigger, or would you just put the gun down and not take the risk? Is how he associates tempting Annabelle.
0: I feel like that's a very fitting analogy. I agree. Like you always say, don't tempt fate. No, we don't play that game here.
1: No. Like could you imagine if the owner of that museum's like she's one bullet. Here you go. <laughs> no, I 100% I would be like not today, scene,
0: Yeah. Well, and like all you have to do is be nice. Just don't be a dick. Right. I it costs zero dollars to not be a dick. <laughs> it does. And, like, if you are
1: wasting your time going to an occult museum, maybe have some respect for the place that you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you don't believe it and you're being dragged there, just sit in the car. Why go in? Yeah. Or be respectful. Yeah. Like, it, mm-mm. mm <laughs> mm I swear if like we went to an occult museum and Jeff was making fun of all these haunted items, I would not get in a car with him after. I'd be like, I'm walking home, bitch.
0: (laughs) Yes. So that is the story of Annabelle. Well, that was a great start
1: to the season. Thank you. I did some looking and it looks like actually the occult museum is closed what yeah it's closed until like further notice oh no, I was pretty sad about it because i'm like one day i would love to go and see it but well, hopefully
0: they reopen hopefully that would be
1: super cool to <laughs> see
0: mm-hmm. all right well i guess that wraps us up for a
1: yes thank you so much for listening to our story today please make sure that you rate and review us we would love to see some
0: five-star reviews for this season, get us more on the map. hmm And if you have any stories or any suggestions, feel free to email us at c4creepy at gmail.com. Or you can check out our website, c4creepy.com. And uh, you can leave a suggestion on our contact page. Yes, that would be
1: wonderful. So thanks again for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for Creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for Creepy podcast. Or on Instagram at C for Creepy podcast. If you have any questions, Concerns or suggestions, please email us at c4creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at lexxa underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.